This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a while, a conversation to remind me, to remind us, to remind the people of Australia that the experiences and the stories of the Indigenous people of this land continue to need to be elevated. Thomas Mayer is a Torres Strait Islander, a Wolfie and a National Indigenous Officer of the Maritime Union of Australia. He has tirelessly advocated for the proposals in the Uluru Statement and is the author of a number of books, including two best-selling books. The first book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, The Journey of the Uluru Statement Towards Voice, Treaty and Truth, tells his story, the story of travelling for 18 months around Australia, taking the Uluru Statement and meeting the remarkable people along the way to campaign towards collaboration. He's also pulled together a children's version of this book called Finding Our Heart, which was published in June 2020. Thomas's latest book has just been released in September of 2021. It's called Dear Son, Letters and Reflections from First Nations Fathers and Sons. There are a number of contributors, including Troy Cassadaly, Stan Grant and Charlie King, and plus many, many more, who have one thing in common. They all have a relative who has been terribly wronged, enslaved, raped and dispossessed because of their Aboriginality. This conversation is pretty real, it's pretty raw, but you will hear from a storyteller at heart, a campaigning communicator. This is your invitation to listen to these stories and many, many more with the guiding light that is Thomas Mayer. Thomas, it's great to be connecting with you here. Yeah, I'm happy to be talking to you, Ali. Uh, look, I want to start by saying thank you very much for your patience. I think I reached out to you about 12 months ago and you said, yes, let's do this. And it took me 12 months to get around. So thank you for that. Oh, no worries. I'm sure it's going to be worth it. We finally got here. Absolutely. Look, let me start by asking you, I've got plenty of questions that I want to ask you and um, some of your writing, your storytelling that I want to unpack with you. But let me start with the question of what is your story? Yeah, I um, I never thought I had much of a story until I started writing, really. But um, my story is I was born and bred here on Larrakia land uh, in Darwin. And uh, my father is a Torres Strait Islander. Uh, my mother is the daughter of a Polish refugee. And they met in, in the Northern Territory here when my dad left Thursday Island for work with a lot of Torres Strait Islanders in that era when the Protection Act you know, finally uh, stopped controlling their lives and they were able to, to you know, go and earn some money. And so, yeah, I, I, those are my parents and I was a wharfie when I became, you know, when I started working at 17 and uh, became uh, very much a trade unionist because of the great value that, um, you know, collectivism has for workers. And, and when I saw... The great work that the union does in social justice and supporting my own people's struggles, you know, that, that really firmed me up as someone that wanted to be part of that movement. And then more recently in, in the movement, uh, you know, purely uh, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights, the Uluru Statement, which led to me writing, yeah. What kind of work did your father do in moving from Thursday Island to, to Darwin? My father was working at a mine, Francis Creek Mine, near Pine Creek in the Northern Territory, and, uh, and then worked on the road. So building the roads around the Northern Territory in the bush a lot. Mum, her father, uh, when he came to Australia as a Polish refugee, he worked at the Snowy River Project. Right. 
and um, he was an engineer, a very, uh, very smart man. Apparently, he was teaching mathematics to adults as a child, you know, when he was a child. And, uh, and yeah, he went to work at the same mine, and that's how my mum and dad met. And what was it like for you growing up as part of the Torres Strait Islander community in Darwin? Well, it's a long way from the Torres Strait. And, you know, as, as for a lot of people not growing up on country, uh, you know, you, you feel less connected to home. But I, I guess I was really lucky in that there's a large Torres Strait Islander community in, the northern, in, in Darwin. And, uh, you know, I practiced island dancing and, you know, we performed at any, you know, ceremonies and weddings and things like that. And because we're close to the salt water, you know, so we're on the coast and it's, it's tropics here. So lots of the same seafoods that we enjoy up in the islands. And, uh, you know, so I've been able to be very connected in that way. Do you get the chance to go back to country? Is that something that you have been able to do over the years? Yeah, go back as often as possible. You know, not so often as a, as a child because it was so expensive to go there, but several times mum and dad went back there to get married. And, and now with work, I get there a bit more often. Uh, and, you know, still got lots of family. My grandma, uh, she's passed away recently. My uncles and aunties, yeah, big families there. You, and you said you um, became a wolfie uh, and went into, into that line of work and, and in amongst that um, went in as, a, I guess, an advocate in that union, under the union with the, with the wolves and part of that's that negotiating and, and advocating. What were the skills, I guess, that you honed through that experience that are now serving the work that you do now? Yeah, I think it was negotiation, basically, you know, understanding power, I think. And I think that's really important moving into what I'm advocating for today. I mean, I'm still a union official, uh, but the union supports me pretty much to, uh, to, to campaign for First Nations rights full time. But understanding power dynamics is really important because... I mean, you learn as, as a worker, as part of a union, that unless you are able to stick together, um, you, uh, you know, as workers with far less power than an employer, especially an employer that has millions of dollars of, you know, and, and makes great profits and therefore has all that resources at their disposal, uh, you know, that, um, that uh, power means a lot, you know, that... Um, and I think one of the main things was structure, you know, structure with which to practice unity, you know, that coherency that you can get, you know, as leverage to, to gain things. And, you know, as we moved to the Uluru Statement and, and as I was finding uh, a way to better advocate for our own people, that really resonated with me when it was the outcome in the Uluru Statement, which calls for a voice. It's, it's simply about collectivism, coherency, structure, choosing your own representatives, yeah. In order to, to share power rather than have it owned by one, one or the other, I think that's really interesting as you, say, you talk about that understanding of, of power and the impact of it and the structures that maintain power. Yeah, I mean, uh, so... You know, uh, the way that workers were able to organise power on the wharf was, you know, through being members of the union, by pooling our resources, by having monthly meetings as members, and then layers of representation, so local officials, state officials, national officials, 
and you can you know that's that's applied anywhere really you know where where power is concentrated the government you know at the, at the highest level you know operates on the same principles the australian people elect leaders uh, or representatives that come together regularly uh, and then determine how the country moves forward business councils you know uh, associations of all types you know of all professions not just unions of workers um, this is just uh, you know really it's it's power building 101 and and so how it relates to the Uluru statement is that every time first nations people have tried to build power through these types of structures and every time we've tried to build a voice so when i talk about representative structures i'm actually talking about a voice for for the people that being they can represented. be heard, heard yeah yeah and so every time we've built a, a voice in this nation from the australian aboriginal progressive association the first which is the first all aboriginal political organization led by a wharfie actually a member of my union an aboriginal man named fred maynard every time they've been silenced so in the 20s with the aapa and leaders like fred maynard they were intimidated by the power of the protection board and the chief protector the and and to explain they had the ability to steal our children legally and they withheld our wages legally um, stole our wages often and got away with it they could uh, decide who we could marry where we could live you know anyone in queensland and and in other cities um, around the country if you see a boundary street you know there's that's the the remainder of this you know where the curfews were applied and so they used their great powers over us as uh, as first nations people to to intimidate fred maynard and, and the leaders and they've done that over and over again throughout history in more modern times the aboriginal and torres strait islander commission uh, was a voice that was established and it was established because we had advocated for it and 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 the barunga statement is actually what called for uh, the Commonwealth to establish a, a representative body, another representative body, just to reiterate, there were many before that. Mm. So Bob Hawke enacted it, but what happened is uh, they didn't use the Protection Act because that no longer existed. But when John Howard won power, and John Howard had opposed the establishment of a voice in opposition, he went about silencing it and, um, and was successful in 2005 after a campaign quite tactical the the atsic had its problems and that's the same as any human organization from time to time right mm -hmm. but uh howard chose to amplify those problems he chose not to help us to address those issues um, he ignored a review done by an aboriginal woman uh Aunty jackie huggins and uh and in 2005 when he had sufficient power he destroyed it so therefore the voice an opportunity to have expression recognition just continued as you say, yeah as you say over time the Uluru statement of the heart is, has not been the first it's the most yeah. recent but has it been the first it. statement or petition you know because not only has there been many voices there's been many statements and petitions i mentioned the barunga statement there's in here on this country 1972 uh, the larakia petition to the queen you know, in the uh, 1963, the Akala Bark petitions, um, and uh, and in the 1930s, a petition to the king that uh, all fell on deaf ears, basically, with the exception of Hawke, who promised from the Barunga statement 
you know, to establish that voice. He also established, uh, uh, promised a treaty, but wasn't able to deliver. I want to talk a little bit about the the book, which was the culmination of a journey that you took, the finding the heart of a nation, um, and certainly talk about the Uluru Statement of the Heart. But just going back a little bit, so being a, a Wolfie and, and being involved in the union and then going going into advocacy for First Nations people, was that a talk me talk me through that journey and that experience? Was there a, a realization and aha for you? Was that something that just kind of happened over time because uh, I think for so many there can be a desire for change. It's a very different take to go, I'm going to commit key actions and my work towards that change. Yeah, I, I love answering this question because, you know, there was that aha moment sort of thing, you know, the, uh, the, the journey, you know, so I was a union official eventually, you know, as a wharfie, and then when I became a union official, I, I was given more time and support to get involved in my own people's struggles, you know, and, and I organised, I threw myself at, at trying to create change. I really threw myself at it. Uh, in 2015, there was the, the community closures issues. So if people don't remember, the, it was when the Abbott government cut hundreds of millions of dollars from community services, you know, remote communities, which in effect, uh, which caused the WA government to announce they were going to shut down a whole lot of Aboriginal communities just by defunding you know, any services to them. And there were national protests and I organised uh, the rallies in response in, in, in Darwin here. And anybody that has organised this sort of struggle, you know, the, the public dissent, uh, the reaction to such poor, harmful decisions, would know that, or against any social injustice, would know that it's um, it's easy to turn people out on the streets when the anger is fresh, and you know the injustice has just happened. Whether it's you know a decision like that, or death, another death in custody, or you know the treatment of refugees, or anything, and it's always harder to keep people turning out, to maintain the rage. Um, to get people to turn up to the next rally and come up with new ways to, you know, keep people interested in fighting against something that they believe is wrong. And, you know, that's what I experienced as I did more advocacy for my own people. And I, through that and, you know, organising rallies for all sorts of different things, including the way that youth were treated in detention at Don Dale, the Four Corners report had exposed it, I started to notice that we were, were quite incoherent in our advocacy. I mean, not incoherent as in getting our message across about the broad injustice, but about what the solutions are uh, specifically and how we can achieve those solutions and, and then how we would negotiate those things. And the reason I found is that we lack that structure, you know, that I learned about being a, a wharfie and a trade unionist, that we did not have a voice, you know, a, a, a structure of representation on political matters. And this caused, you know, this, this really did not help us. For example, at a rally, we could have five speakers and 10 different solutions to the one problem, you know, mm -hmm. and so... Yeah. You know, everybody's still fired up and rah, rah, but, you know, you're not going to get anywhere if you can't nail down on one 
specific way to achieve something. And then progress just feels hard and and yeah. you put a lot of effort. It's highly emotional and as you kind of keeping the yeah. rage up, as you say, like it's hard to yeah. do. And I'm not saying we can't have differences of opinions, you know, like at that, I'm not saying that we need a 100% consensus on how to do something, uh, but you need to have the opportunity to come together as a people, you know, because First Nations people are around 700,000 people. We're only 3% of the population, but still that's a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. And we're spread out across a huge continent and a lot of our people are still impoverished. So it's very hard for us to, uh, nobody can come together without structure and resources, right? Nobody, no, no large polity. And so, you know, I really found that that was what was missing from our movement. And it was soon after that I was involved, invited to a dialogue in Darwin about constitutional recognition. Uh, I met Teela Reid, who's been on one of the episodes before at a trial dialogue in Melbourne. And in this dialogue, in this series of dialogues around the country, I saw this opportunity for us with resources that, uh, that our people had fought for from the government, people like Professor Megan Davis, Noel Pearson, Arnie Pat Anderson, Pat Dodson before he became a politician, that they'd done the work to give us the opportunity to come together around the country in a, in a formulated way and reach a consensus about what's next. And what was so exciting was the consensus was what I found was missing, which is to build the structure to which we can practice unity and be more coherent. So the importance of that Uluru statement of the heart was a coming together, a recognition, but also the next steps. I remember in the conversation that I had with Teela, and, and we'll certainly put the links to the Uluru Statement of the Heart so that people can make sure they are informed and understand what that statement is. But those three words around voice, treaty, truth, that they are very intentional, that they are intentionally in that order, that we can't get to treaty without a recognition of voice because those voices just aren't heard, the stories aren't a part of the story. And so I can understand what you're talking about is that structure that then helps the difference of opinions to have some, you know, what do we do with that as opposed to those, those voices, yes, being heard, but nothing ever happens, which becomes yeah. disheartening over time. Mm. About accountability, right? Politicians in this country, since Australia became in 1901 with the enactment of the Australian Constitution, have always failed us, have constantly failed First Nations people as leaders. And that's because they don't prioritise our special interests as, you know, a, a people with over 100,000 years of continuous culture, but also because of the damage that they've done to our um, societal structures, um, our mental health, you know, all of, all of these things. And if they have constantly failed, why aren't they being held to account? And then it, what it boils down to, I think, is... is that democracy fails First Nations people in this country. And I'm not saying I'm anti-democracy, I'm saying we need an amplified voice. First Nations people need an amplified voice to be able to participate in this democracy because we're only 3%. And if anybody today, I think, was to consider if First Nations people should have had a share of power when the constitution was negotiated and enacted, 
I think a great majority of Australians would say yes. First Nations people should have been at the table with the colonies, New South Wales, Victoria, etc., cetera, uh, negotiating how decisions are made in this country. That wasn't done. So quite generously, all First Nations people are saying today is that we want the power to speak for ourselves. We want the power to hold decision makers to account. We're not saying that we want the power to force anything in Parliament or veto any legislation like a third chamber would do, which we certainly aren't asking for. Um, we're generously just calling for a voice that can advise government and campaign to hold them to account in a coherent way. Certainly the very first time I read that Uluru Statement of the Heart, it, it struck me the, and you talk about collectivism and generosity and coming together and that absolutely comes through. It's not a, a taking of power, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a recognition and working together that is incredibly powerful. One of the things, um, I guess one of the areas that you are continuing to share the advocacy is, is through your writing and I, I can see a, a level of storyteller in what you bring. How important is, is storytelling to the process of including this conversation within our nation? How important is storytelling for you personally? What's, what's the connection to storytelling? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, storytelling is in, is in our blood, you know, as in the, the oratory style, you know. The, and storytelling is, I think it's the same across all human cultures, though. But, uh, you know, the, the difference with our storytelling is that it's been continuous for far longer than any other culture on the planet. You know, we are the oldest living culture on the planet. But it's such a moving thing. I think when a story is told in the right way, uh, when it's told in a way that people can connect to, uh, that they can feel because they can relate to the characters or the experiences in a story. And the Uluru Statement itself is actually, you know, a powerful story. You know, when you, when you read it, it takes you from, it takes the reader from the, you know, before colonisation, before Captain Cook came along and, and lied about Terra Nullius, that this land was vacant. It goes uh, through the, you know, the, those facts that um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are born there from, remain attached there to, and will one day return thither, saying that, that there's this deep connection to this country that's deeper than anything that has tried to separate it. Um, but it also tells a story about our, the torment of our powerlessness, you know, what's happening now. What are we experiencing now that we're the most incarcerated people on the planet, you know, that our children are alien from our families at unprecedented rates? And then it, it goes to say, you know, how we can resolve it and invites the, the listener, you know, or the reader. The Uluru Statement also on the outside, the, the artwork is storytelling, you know, in the, in the traditional way. Um, it's the chukupa, the, the songline stories are depicted on the Uluru Statement. And um, to me seeing and and learning from stories uh, it led to me to write because I knew that um, this was a good way to help the campaign really try to move people yeah and to connect with those stories now I understand and tell me if I'm wrong here in in my research but with the Uluru Statement of the Heart you were entrusted with the canvas and took an 18 month mm. journey around the country to share the story that you've just shared with us here is there any stories that 
come to mind that I'm sure there was plenty when you talk about 18 months and, and sitting with people and going from community to community. Are there any stories that stick out to you from that 18-month experience? Yeah, there is. Um, Yule River was an amazing experience. Uh, Yule River is a, is a little, it's a place, uh, not in a town or anything like that, just on the riverbank, and it's in the Pilbara. It was one of the first places I took the Uluru Statement to, and it was the First Nations people of the Pilbara still meet there, um, as they have for thousands and thousands of years. And I rolled it out on the, you know, on the red, in the red dust, you know, typical red dust in the Pilbara, and explained it. And there were, you know, men's business and women's business, you know, all in the in, in a really traditional way, and and it was endorsed emphatically. Uh, again, you know, so just to explain, my first thing that I wanted to do with the Uluru Statement, the, the canvas, was to take it to First Nations communities and explain what had happened at Uluru, you know. And, uh, and uh, that evening, what was really special was the, there was dancing and there were some dances that were done that hadn't been done for, you know, generations, I was told. And, but there was, I had so many special experiences like that. And uh, in my first book, that's that's why I wrote it, um, Finding the Heart of the Nation. I, I wanted to share that, but I also wanted to share the voices of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that I met on that journey that I thought um, wouldn't be heard otherwise. It's a beautiful book and it, it is one of those ones that, um, you know, through the pictures and the stories that you, you share in that, it uh, has a sense that we kind of come along on, on that experience with you. The very start of the book, you you talk about an invitation to to listen, and um, you know I'm interested in you know as someone who's not a First Nations person here in Australia, and wanting to recognise my own privilege, my own blind spots in the history that I wasn't told or brought up with, but wanting to shift and learn that there can be a bit of a pull between listening and action. And how much time do we spend listening and how much does then listening require some movement and action? But then if we're doing all the action and not listening, then that feels like that could miss out on the voice that we were talking about as well. And I, I feel that, that tension. I think it's a really mm. good tension to have. But I'm wondering from your experience, both in the wharf but also in this advocacy, of how do we do this dance between listening and and moving, getting into action. I think that's a really good point you make about the balance between listening and action. And I think uh, the the answer is the the First Nations voice established in the Constitution, because it's like let me describe it like this. I guess it's like trying to listen to seven hundred thousand voices at the same time, in the absence of this voice, this structure for which the people can come together themselves and speak with one voice. And, yeah, I think that's the best way to describe why. And I loved how you talked about the difference between listening and action. I think the, that most Australians have listened. And I don't say that just, you know, from my own small little bubble. Uh, there's been polling that indicates that, you know, a great, great majority of people say they're ready for reconciliation today, mm -hmm. that they believe that there needs to be reconciliation, a great majority. And 
they one of the things that in our polling that shows that a majority of Australians would vote yes in a referendum, it's around 70% today. One of the compelling reasons that they say is that it's time. It's time because I, I guess it's they say that because they've been doing reconciliation for almost two decades now, right? There's been reconciliation um, events and, you know, special days and weeks um, cups of teas and you know morning teas and and all that sort of stuff uh, we've been acknowledging country for quite a few years now we've been talking about this reconciliation because people have listened and are learning the truth and now it's time for action and so all of that good work that has been done the truth telling the teaching about reconciliation the teaching about lack of constitutional recognition Really now, it's at a point where it must transfer at the ballot box and result in a power shift in this country. You know, a power shift that uh, doesn't fundamentally change how our system works, but just gives First Nations people the power to be able to, to heal, uh, not just ourselves, but this country. Um, and to be able to stop the wastage in Indigenous affairs where, you know, so much is just being done wrong um, with little result. And there's going to continue to be a huge amount of work. I think what you're talking, what I'm hearing is that it's a recognition of that, but it's starting with the recognition in our constitution and whether it's even the movement towards a, a referendum that just hasn't happened in this country to date. So I love that sense of yeah, that's, lis- listening's been there and mm. it's time for action. Yeah, that's where it has to be. It must be in the constitution because the constitution is like, our DNA as Australians, right? It's the bounds with which we can grow and, and operate. You know, it's those, it's, it's the rule book for all of us, uh, not just citizens, ordinary citizens, but the rule book for politicians as well, importantly. And uh, it's our founding document. It, it must be the place where we begin this recognition. If it's anywhere else, you see the problem, just like all those voices that have been silenced by hostile governments, it's too easily, it's too vulnerable to uh, a shift in political ideology in the centre of politics. So it stays for three years and then it's gone, it's vulnerable to the shift in Yeah, one of the great frustrations that came out in the dialogues in Aduru is just a lack of consistency. Uh, I, uh, I'm very close with the Gurindji people here in the Northern Territory, the people that walked off Wavehill Station famously, that Paul Kelly sings a song about, uh, and their leader was Vincent Lingyari. And, uh, you know, I was with them. They, they support the Uluru Statement because, um, uh, I'll tell this story first, they support the Uluru Statement so passionately because though they won a handful of sand from Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, you know, after that long walk off and, and struggle for winning land back and equal pay, uh, even... Vincent Lingari always said he wanted his people to be able to live on their land their way. And so when he received the handful of sand, that was a very joyous moment. It was, uh, you know, a great result. But what the Gurindji people found was that when they had their land, they were still bound to the constitution, the rules in the constitution, the laws and regulations that were made that controlled then how they were able to live on the land that they had won back. And so at the Freedom Day Festival that celebrates the um, Wave Hill Walk-Off, 
uh, in late August every year. Just not long ago, I was talking to the, to the leaders of the Gurindji people, and they were, it was before the Northern Territory election, and they were really worried that all the work that they had done in their community about housing, about the Freedom Day Festival itself and funding and just simple things like lights at the footy oval, they were waiting with bated breath to see what the outcome was because a change of politics could mean that, you know, even a change of minister, a change of portfolios could do this. Uh, they were worried that they'd have to start all over again. Yeah, so that's con- you're constantly holding breath and walking on eggshells. Yeah, so I guess the, the thing that it leads to is, you know, if we have a consistent, strong voice collectively, then that helps us to keep politicians consistent, you know, across elections and, and the rest. Which gives that structure. And there's always going to be changing ministers, changing political directions, but the underlying structure that underpins all of that, regardless of political party, is what you're talking about and why that's, yeah, in... I'm sitting here going, I can understand even further through this conversation about why that's so important, which I think is really valuable because there will continue to be, you know, heartbreaking stories and stories that get your blood up, as you as you say. And one of the ones that you shared in preparation for this conversation is a current discrimination case that's with the, um, with the Human Rights Commission. Are you happy to share a little bit, a little bit about that story and help me, I guess, to understand what actions have been taken and what are the implications of those actions? Yeah, this is um, a, a discrimination case just very recently been taken to the Human Rights Commission. And what it is, is that we have learnt, so not only are we disadvantaged in this democracy as only 3% of the population uh, with our special place, uh, but there is also a policy that the Australian Electoral Commission has that discriminates by requiring people in remote Aboriginal communities to have a postal address to be able to be directly enrolled by the Australian Electoral Commission. To explain, the Electoral Commission since 2012 has had the power to directly enrol people by using trusted, you know, trusted sources of information such as Centrelink details or driver's licences, you know, uh, those types of things that confirm a person's existence and place of residence, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Indigenous people don't have a postal box in these communities, you know, because they're tiny communities. Uh, they get their mail, you know, at the nearest shop or, you know, they go into Catherine or whatever. And so um, where the AEC uses that power to directly enrol in urban centres they don't in remote Aboriginal communities. And so you could certainly say that this policy, even if it's indirectly, um, but, but it discriminates against Indigenous people and their ability to be able to enrol to vote. You know, over 10,000 Aboriginal people are not enrolled to vote in the Northern Territory. And that affects the result, you know, when you, when you look at the, you know, how close some elections are. And then it affects how we are able to hold um, our members of parliament to account, you know, at that greatest level, which is, you know, in a democracy, which is at an election. Um, the other part of the complaint is that they, the AEC, the ballot box is only in these small communities for a number of hours, you know, a couple of hours type of thing. A lot of people miss out on voting. I've personally travelled tens of thousands of kilometres in the lead up to elections and witness this myself. So 
I think it's an important complaint and, um, you know, the AEC needs to stop that discrimination. As you say, I mean, it, it kind of speaks to what you were talking about in terms of how the structure means that the voice is not heard and we, if we live in a country that has democracy and it's a requirement to vote, it's not a choice, uh, it's a requirement by being a, um, a member of this country that, yeah, I think that's, it's a really interesting that that structure, the sim- simple formality of needing a postal address. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, again, I've been to too many, but a couple of communities I've been to, I totally understand that you just go to the, the shop, the general store, and they know who you are and here's mail for you. <laughs> like, you know, it's, yep. it's yep. not yeah, needed exactly. um, for that to function, that, that structure, like it would in an urban kind of setting. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, understanding that complexity in what that means in terms of votes just not even being cast or a voice not mm. even being heard. Yeah, and when you think about the problems, okay, so all the gaps that need to be closed, you know, almost 10 years difference in life expectancy, the incarceration rates, the suicide rates, that's why the Uluru Statement says this is a structural problem, you know, because it, it relates to how we're hurting this democracy. So important to shift and change that sitting here, as I say, with a, with a newfound kind of recognition of how important that, that action is to be advocating for constitutional rec- recognition and and a push towards a referendum. So, as you say, there is support there that allowed the Australian public to vote in understanding some of those stories. Yeah, there's absolutely support. People are ready. We yeah. just need leadership. You know, the politicians just need to get the courage, uh, show some leadership, and a majority of Australians will vote yes. We can win a referendum. I'm interested in, because a lot of what you would face, um, I imagine, is both encouraging but also, I'm assuming, and um, let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but that at times a bit disheartening, a feeling like, you know, progress is not kind of happening. What keeps you going in those times when it feels like nothing is changing? Well, what keeps me going is knowing that the these are more than statistics when we talk about you know suicide and all the rest but this is actually people people children families that are devastated um it's empathy that keeps me going i think uh it's it's that and it's also that i i I know what the next step is and that next step has come from um something as wonderful as the consensus that we reached at uluru um that has been sent to the australian people as an invitation and that keeps me going that hope that I know that we got it right at Uluru about what we propose comes next and that it came from a genuine consensus of our people and that I know that people will join us and we can do it. So having that structure in the next step as well and the stories that sit behind it, I love that sense of it's the empathy and that there are individuals behind the numbers that we see. The next stories that you have pulled together, which is uh, your next book that is being published in September of this year, is called Dear Son. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful anthology of of uh, oh, you're sharing. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover and story. But you have gathered letters and and reflections of some incredible people um, across Australia, t- writing a writing a letter to to their son. What was the what was the prompt for this book? Well, it was actually uh, Tara June Winch. If you know Tara yes. June, she won the uh, Miles Franklin, I think it was, last year. 
and with the book uh, The Yield, you know, oh, which is a great book. Incredible I've read book. that. Yeah, loved it. But I met Tara um, when she was basically uh, launching that book. It was at the Perth Writers Festival. So we were both at the Perth Writers Festival early last year before COVID hit. And she and I got along well. And we were yarning and she just said, um, you'd be great to write a book about fatherhood. I said, yeah, right, you know, as if, because I've got five children. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, with, with all my flaws as a father, you know, and, and um, as, a, as a person. And, you know, I thought, how am I going to write a book about fatherhood? But I said, I'd think about it. And uh, it was actually Teela Reid that lent me the book, oh, the, the essays of James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time. And I read uh, the epistolary style letter, you know, a letter to his nephew. And, um, and so uh, that inspired me to think, hey, this book about fatherhood that I'm thinking about, it would be great to do it in the form of letters to sons or, or sons to fathers. And so that was the inspiration. The inspiration also is, is, is ultimately that uh, I think that it's overdue that First Nations men, you know, fathers were celebrated. I think um, that we need to tell the truth about uh, our past and, and you know. So, for example, in the introduction, I talk about how, you know, as I, when I was a child going to school, I was taught that my forefathers were savages, you know, unintelligent, whereas uh, non-Indigenous, you know, or, or white children, in the same class were basically looking at their forefathers and learning that they were that they discovered Australia and that they were inventors and explorers and scientists and all this sort of thing. And so, you know, that's done a lot to diminish First Nations men, I think. And also the intervention, the Northern Territory intervention, how John Howard, again, um, basically uh, using a fabrication uh, about the... Well, basically announcing to Australia in 2007 that pedophilia, um, domestic violence was an Aboriginal problem and that it warranted huge discrimination to the point where he had to suspend the Discrimination Act, the Racial Discrimination Act, and uh, to be able to mobilise the Australian army against vulnerable, uh, you know, small vulnerable Aboriginal communities. You know, billions of dollars spent on that, demonising Indigenous men, and disempowering us and and that did no help you know it gave us it, it didn't take those communities forward at all um, and so you know i think uh this stereotype also that was in bill leak's cartoon uh in the australian some might remember it but there's a cartoon by bill leak with uh, an aboriginal man depicted with a policeman holding a boy by the scruff of the neck and the aboriginal man's got a you know can of uh you know obviously alcohol in his and, and the policeman, and basically the cartoon makes out that an Aboriginal father wouldn't know who his son's name. And so, yeah, the book is about responding to those stereotypes and giving us a place to celebrate, you know. Um, place to recognise. And also... Recognise some of the trauma in some of those imagery as well. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, I think it was important that um, as First Nation, as men not First Nations men, but we still, we talk about, um, you know, uh, toxic masculinity and uh, coercive control, uh, all of these things that as men, as men, we are the main perpetrators. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and that we've got a responsibility to call that out. And so we do that in this book as well. 
Talk to me about, because you've got uh, contributors from, I mean, your, yourself, the likes of Stan Grant, Troy Cassadaly, reaching out to those individuals. What was that experience like and talking them through around, you know, them sharing their own stories around fatherhood? Yeah, I think uh, nobody hesitated, you know, when I, when I put it to them. Uh, to write a letter to their son. It, it shows a lot about the, the maturity of these men that are in the book. And I think, uh, you know, our maturing as, you know, as, as people, as Indigenous men. And uh, it, it helped. I, I wrote my letter first, you know, or at least a, a draft, you know, a pretty well done draft. And uh, so they had something to have a read of and, you know, help them think about how they'd do it. Uh, they're all very different, the letters, and, uh, and I really like that. It's similar to my first book, Finding the Heart of the Nation. I interviewed 20 people and I was worried the stories would be too similar that they tell, but they're so different, you know, so unique and, and moving in their own ways. It's such a powerful book and congratulations on, on pulling it together. With your, with your five kids and I guess part of the connection even to this, this book, what are your hopes for, for your kids uh, as they grow up? I just want my kids to be happy and healthy, I think. You know, that's, that's, you know, that's the catch-all for it all. I just want them to live a long life and be happy and healthy in a world that treats others around them with kindness and respect as well. And for yourself, what do you, what's exciting you about what's next on, uh, for you? For your, obviously, this book coming out, um, starting to share that. Uh, but what's, what's next for you? I'm writing some more books. I'm still working. I, I've got the bug now. I love writing. Never expected to be a writer as a wharfie, you know, and, <laughs> and as a boy that, you know, I, I finished year 12. But, um, so, yeah, I, I'm going to There'll write be a, a book in that books. somewhere from, from wharfie to writer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, um, but uh, we're continuing to advocate for the Uluru Statement. I'm excited that the momentum that we've got in that campaign, uh, I think there, there's, you know, a wonderful response from the Australian people. It's been a hard grind over four years. Certainly felt a bit lonely at the beginning there when a lot of people didn't know about it and there was a lot of misinformation, but we're, we're moving along nicely now and, um, and continue to advocate for workers' rights, you know, and um, I think... Uh, all those things that we've achieved as workers, not just for ourselves directly, but the things like universal health care um, that's under threat now under this government, uh, you know, that, that put, puts us in, you know, a world of difference to the United States in times like COVID, especially that, you know, we can get sick and not be bankrupted. Uh, you know, those are, and superannuation, you know, the dignity to, re dignity to retire and, and improving superannuation is, you know, for, for women that, you know, uh, tend to uh, stop work more than, than men for family duties and things. So much more to do in that space too and so much to defend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping, you, keeping you busy. But thank you so much for your generosity of time and for the stories that, that you have captured so far and no doubt plenty more to come. I want to wrap up by asking you the final question of this podcast. The podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, geez. Um, look, my response is that all I've done is follow my heart. You know, and uh, and that's I think we all live standout lives, and that's what I say to children. 
because uh, learning your own story eventually that you have one, as I have, I learned that it doesn't matter what you're doing, even if you think you're doing a monotonous job that's, uh, you know, that's not that special. Um, you are building a story that, that is special and unique and that you'll tell one day. So keep that in mind. Perfect. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Alison. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.